This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, Welcome everyone. This is the Physical Activity Researcher podcast and I am Nora Rankainen. In today's episode, we are going to expand the discussions on the impact of the COVID pandemic on physical activity and exercise that have already taken place in this podcast. And we will do that by exploring sociological perspectives on the social response to the pandemic. I have the honor to have two excellent guests today who have recently joined forces to write a commentary on COVID-19, exercise and bodily self-control. Our guests have argued that the pandemic has revealed important insights about the social significance of sport, health and embodiment. Dominic Malcolm is reader in the Sociology of Sport in the School of Sport, Exercise and Health Sciences at Loughborough University. His recent research has focused on the intersections of sport, medicine and health, and he has also examined the construction of medical expert knowledges on concussion and the impact of sports concussion crisis on a range of non-elite sport participants. Philip Pavelier is Associate Professor in the Sociology of Sport and Head of Education and Sociology at the School of Sport, Health and Social Sciences at Solent University. Her research focuses on issues of social justice in sport and more specifically on gender relations in sport. So good morning and thank you so much for joining me today. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's really wonderful that you both found the time. And and the reason I got in touch with you a couple of weeks ago is that I read your commentary article with the title COVID-19 Exercise and Bodily Self-Control, which was published in Sociologia del Deporte. And I really found it thought-provoking, and I wanted to know more about that. And as I said, I'm really delighted that you I, to have you here today to expand on what you have argued in the paper. So let's start out by if you can share a little bit about how this paper came about. I guess I better take the lead on this because... Um, so Philippa and I both got an email asking for contributions to this um, new journal. And it's a journal that we're both on the editorial board of. So they were very kind of keen to reach out to their immediate um, population and look for help. Um, and this, for me, really stemmed from the previous work that I'd done in terms of sport, medicine and health, where I'd looked at some of the public health arguments around physical activity and its contribution to sport. But Philippa and I share a kind of theoretical perspective based on Norbert Elias. And I was conscious that the principles of that tell us really that we should be um, not looking or we should be looking to produce research which was both developmental over time and relational. So we weren't just kind of having a knee-jerk reaction to the COVID pandemic. We wanted to put it in its historical context. So that's when I reached out to Philippa and we talked about how we might develop um, this piece. Yeah, yeah sure. and, and from my perspective, it was quite it's quite interesting to see some of the, the quite quickly when we went into lockdown um, to see some of the, the trends that were happening around physical activity. And so when Dominic um, and I first spoke about this paper, it was about how can we 
understand uh, from a sociological and figurational or Elysian perspective what we are seeing. So, so that, that's really where the paper started. Yeah, wonderful. Let's start then from the beginning of the paper. So what you already said that you wanted to put this in a context and kind of look from a sociological perspective, what can what can we say about the social response to, to the COVID-19? And you are talking more broadly in your paper about the typical patterns of social responses to public health crises such as this. So can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, so what we wanted to do was think about the social reaction to the coronavirus in relation to how uh, populations have responded to previous public health crises. Um, And there's a very seminal paper by uh, Peter Strong from the 1990s, which talks about um, how the social response to pandemics tends to focus around issues of fear, explanation, and action. So the, the, the population is clearly scared about a, a new potential threat to their lives. Um, the population desires an explanation to to show us what the causation of this is and urges really, really strong and immediate action. And Strong was writing in the context of, of AIDS and HIV, and, and this was perhaps probably the last great kind of pandemic that affected uh, Western societies in the way that COVID did. We were also influenced by um, Jupp Husblom, um, a Dutch sociologist who used um, Elias very much in his work, who placed this in the, concept, in the context of what Elias called civilizing processes. Now, this is a complex theoretical term, but basically what Elias is talking about here is that there's, over time, we can demonstrate a long-term shift towards humans becoming increasingly um, controlling over their own behavior. There's greater self-regulation of our own behavior, and there's greater kind of social or governmental control over uh, our own behavior as well. So, so these two things go hand in hand, a kind of increase in state involvement in the way people behave, but also an internalization of that. And what Kuzblum said is that... Um, in pandemics that we've seen in the past, and he um, he compares responses to the plague, cholera, um, responses to syphilis in the past, um, he argues that what we see generally happening is the ostracization of victims of illness. We see an increased attention to the relationship between ill health and cleanliness. Uh, and he see, and he argues that many of the interventions that we see are not actually firmly grounded in empirical evidence, but are strong reactions or immediate reactions in this kind of sense of being seen to be doing something and to acting to save the population. Yes, and uh, Philippa, do you want to expand on that? Yeah, I mean, research that Dominic's talked about, I think what what's interesting is to look at those patterns of social responses to pandemics because often when something new happens like COVID-19 we think about it or we understand it in the present so I think it was quite interesting to see the trends um, and patterns around social responses to pandemics um, and particularly um, around the hygiene and and the wearing of masks which has become um, 
an issue of debate um, in the UK who were much later to enforce the wearing of face coverings or masks in public, for example. So I think it it's important that we understand these social responses and the patterns and, and how they come about over time and, and how we, we come to self-regulate. So despite some of the resistance around face coverings or wearing masks in the UK, there has now been a shift to to those who don't wear those um, who or who are resistant um, to to them being criticised for for not regulating and not protecting others. Yeah, here in Finland also there there are the debates about the masks, and it's only this week or the last couple of weeks that now now the recommendations are coming through more forcefully and and it was yesterday was the record high day of people everybody going to buy a mask when when people are going back to their offices here in Finland. This is a really good example of what Hoosblum says about how initiatives are introduced despite the lack of empirical evidence. So at the beginning of this pandemic um, western governments were relatively skeptical about the evidence of wearing masks. And what's changed is not that the empirical evidence has got much, much stronger, but that social attitudes have changed and it's become more acceptable. And it's been seen as something that we can do or we can be seen to be doing, um, which might be effective. And there's there's the kind of hope that it will be rather than the scientific certainty that it will do. And it may well prove that, that this is a very effective way of controlling the virus. But it may not just be about the technology of wearing a mask. It might be also to do with the social response to people wearing masks. So when we see people wearing masks, it, it, it alerts us or reminds us to the fact that we are in a pandemic situation, that we should socially distance. And it it keeps the idea of the pandemic at the forefront of our minds and it changes our action. So there is an element, this could work because of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. And basically you are telling telling us that there are these shared patterns in the response that we've seen before and, and what has been theorized before in sociology. In in your analysis and when you are looking at the developments, would you say that the COVID response is exhibiting the same pattern that is identified in previous work? So is is there something new that is that is happening or something that is surprising? I mean I would I would say there's a huge amount of similarity. Uh, between or, or what was striking to us when we started talking about how we we're going to frame this article was just how much repetition there was or how much obvious evidence we could see uh, in the comparison between previous responses to public health crises and this one. So one of them is that is that this debate about the science uh, and whether um, we're implementing measures that are not scientifically proven but um, respond to that call for action. Um, we also saw very much the um, the focus on the ostracization of victims of, of, of illness here. So the kind of social distancing. So one of the things that Hoosbaum says is that um, one of the things that's characterized previous pandemics is the socially advantaged have been able to separate themselves from the socially disadvantaged um, and, and create social barriers between them. And what I think we've seen in relation to COVID is the ability of certain groups in society to work from home and therefore 
better self-isolate and and um, and therefore restrict the spread of disease in um, more middle-class populations. In contrast to key workers and those um, groups within society whose work necessarily involves contact with the public, where uh, rates of um, COVID have been much higher. So our social advantage as, as certain types of groups and as academics um, working from home on computers almost as normally as, as, as ever, it seems, um, that huge advantage means that we can be socially distanced from those who are more at risk from catching the virus. Yeah, I think the issue around sort of social inequalities um, and COVID is something that um, requires greater consideration around which groups are able to, like Dominic says, work, work from home and socially distance and where you see certain populations that have to go to work or, tr for instance, using public transport, which we know is um, a risk factor in terms of COVID and catching the virus. And, and for some people that, you know, they have to go to work, they're key workers, and that is their means of getting there. Um, but also around social inequalities and access to internet, schooling, um, and for some people, the facilities to, to work from home or to socially distance just, just haven't been the same. Finally, I, I think I'd just add to that as well. The the differences uh, that people have in being enabled to socially distance. So so if if you live in a large house that has a garden, it's relatively easy to keep yourself um, socially distanced from others. But if you live in a small flat in the middle of a city, the only place for you to be outside is in the public parks. And so much attention has been focused on people within those public parks. And that's not a simply a matter of individual choice. That's partly um, a consequence of the environment in which they live, which 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 forces people into these kind of um, open air spaces, and therefore creates greater danger um, in terms of contagion and spread of the disease. Yeah, and it's quite interesting how those people have become stigmatised for that, isn't it? In terms of not regulating themselves or, or using those spaces and how particularly the media have have often stigmatized people going to those spaces and i i think that brings us to our our topic when we start talking about physical activity and exercise that often that's something that you would do outdoors and and then the parks and and green spaces would would be the places where many people would prefer to do that if we move on to further on in your commentary and then you are writing about these different patterns that you have identified when we are looking at the response in relation to physical activity and exercise so you identified four dimensions that that emerged in in the social response to covid and so it would be quite nice to go through them one by one. And the first thing that you mention and, and you discuss is, is the exceptional status that has been granted to exercise during the pandemic. So one of you could start developing that. Yeah, so I, I mean, I'll start with that one because that's um, initially where, where we started with some of our ideas about, about the paper because in the UK, and I think that this was similar uh, across different lockdowns in different countries, but in the UK, when the lockdown was announced on the 22nd of March, there were certain 
reasons um, that you could lose you could leave your home so and one of those was to exercise outside once a day on your own or with members of your household so that became an exceptional reason for leaving one's home and just to put that in perspective the other reasons were to go and get sensual food items or medication um, or care for others or attend work um, if you were a, a key worker so I, I think it was interesting to see exercise become such an important aspect of one's life that it had been given this exceptional status. And I think one of the discussions that Dominic and I had early on were that had this pandemic been sort of 10, 15 years ago, we weren't um, sure that such a decision would have been made that, that exercise wouldn't have been given that exceptional status um, in the past. So I, I think this demonstrates how significant exercise has become in our daily lives, but also in the message about keeping ourselves healthy and sort of self-regulation of weight um, and health in Western societies. Yeah, I mean, if, uh, so the context of this, I suppose, is the launch of the Exercises Medicine um, Initiative in in the US. But I think what we see here, or what the the pandemic situation brings to light, is just how successful that's been really that actually literally here we were putting exercise on a par with um medications medical treatment food i mean it it was deemed in the uk at least as one of those essential aspects of life um and i think that's a remarkable shift that is all too easily forgotten in the in the kind of thrust of our everyday lives we we see that physical activity has been um, has become more central and more important. But I think this was a really interesting marker of just how central uh, it is to um, the way we are seen to live our lives. And I think as the second point that you that you bring in this paper also is that the different institutions such as Sport England are, are making sure that people know that exercise is essential for your well-being and that's something that you should not not be skipping and so i what you are writing about the second second point about this message is reinpo uh, reinforcing the importance of exercise and you're talking about the fitness experts i i think those phenomena that are coming up in terms of the national pe teacher who you mentioned and 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 that work it it kind of demonstrates very well how how this importance of exercise is now very widely accepted yeah i mean i think it was interesting that very few people questioned that exceptional status of exercise as well that you know it, it was accepted that that was a, a reason um to, to leave your house it, it wasn't even something that was sort of questioned which i think um it is interesting and then we see in this second um point about how quickly people and organizations moved to emphasize you can you can still go outside and do exercise because that's one of the reasons that you've been given to leave your house but also you can exercise in your own home and there becomes quite a quick shift to experts who are advising about what exercise you can continue to do in your own home so you've got you know sport england 
very quickly launched the join the movement and stay in work out campaign um so we get this message quite quickly about the importance of staying fit um, and healthy um, whilst we're at home as well. I remember in the early stages of this, it seemed that the um, the BBC website, sport website, seemed to have a different um, elite athlete showing us their exercise routine every single day. It was quite a, 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 a torrent, really, or repetition of... Uh, of demonstrations of what we could be doing at home that kind of matched this um, the, these policy campaigns to to keep us uh, moving and and suggesting that it was more important at this time than ever. So not only did it consolidate that movement towards exercise as medicine, but it, it gave it a fresh impetus really um, and, and brought it into everybody's homes at a time when everybody was at home. Yeah, I, I think especially in the UK where you had a more severe lockdown and, and this kind of um, working out at home and, and this home exercises, they were probably, as you write, also a big commercial opportunity for for people who are working in the fitness industry to to make, uh, make a business out of it. I, I think here in Finland, when we didn't have like a full lockdown, then a lot of people were actually keeping up with walking outside, which is the most popular activity, or or going for a bicycle ride or going for a little jogging. So I think what, what you see probably is a big rupture. And for example, in the UK, where you had a more drastic lockdown compared to Finland, where you were still allowed to move freely outside as, as much as you wish. Yeah, and I know that other countries had, I mean, other countries had much more severe lockdowns than the UK even. And I was talking to a, a colleague a few days ago who had read this piece and, um, and has actually done lots of work in this area of sport and health and medicine and so on. And he said he hadn't really realised until he read the piece. And he remembered that as he had sat listening to the announcement of the lockdown, he, he sat there thinking, just please let me go out on be able to go out on my bike. Please let that be the one thing that you allow. And that's kind of how central it is. And I think there was a push for uh, in the UK even of, of you know people going out and walking and, and using this time that they were allowed out. And there was some negotiation about, well, how long is the right amount to be outside? I know that France, for instance, have a... Um, uh, a, a limit of one can go three miles I think it is from one's house but there was no real limit for the UK population it was kind of as far as your exercise would would take you go and and um, and I'm sure there was an upsurge of, of people taking that kind of um, opportunity to walk um, and do exercise as a consequence of this kind of urging to keep the nation moving yeah and I think Along, al alongside that message of exercise, which we talk about in, in this section, was, al was also concern about people's weight. So it, it wasn't just about exercise and doing exercise for one's well-being, although that, me that message was, was there. There was this also message alongside that about, you know, in lockdown, to try and make sure that we, we don't um, put on weight and we don't um, gain weight during this period of, of potential inactivity by making sure that we stay 
active either in or outside the house and, th- and that was quite a strong message I think um, in in the media about how not to put on weight during lockdown. Yeah there was mm. a strong and, and uh, element of kind of creating a set of, of shame and embarrassment around people um, uh, who were not exercising to create a strong moral pressure um, to exercise. Um, and this really is a kind of continuation of what we've seen over the last, well, perhaps 20 years in terms of uh, the emphasis on um, individuals taking responsibility for their own um, health management. Um, and what's interesting about this is that this largely stems from the shift in the balance between communicative or communicated illnesses and non-communicated illnesses. So as we see growth in things like um, heart disease and diabetes which are not communicated between populations we see this emphasis on health self-management individuals have a moral responsibility or are deemed to have a moral responsibility to look after their health through taking individual action what coronavirus shows us is that actually communicative diseases are are, are also hugely important but um but our own self-management of um, the coronavirus is less significant because it's about communication. It necessarily is an interaction between people. It's not about just the individual. Um, But in this context, we did see uh, an upsurge, really, in the the sense of guilt about exercising. And some of the respondents to the uh, Sport England survey spoke specifically to this and said they did feel guilty if they weren't exercising at this time of national health crisis yes and that was that was the third point of your of your commentary that you are raising these unintended consequences um well i'm not entirely sure it was unintended i'm you know i think that's part and parcel of the of the um the movement towards promoting physical activity is that there is an element of of um suggesting that exercising is a moral duty therefore not exercising is is is, is semi shameful uh-huh. uh, and what um what porter says about exercise is very interesting is that i mean there's many things that we can do to our bodies to make us look fit and healthy and to signal that we're good citizens to the outside world that we can have our hair done we can have our nails done we can have beauty treatments and so on we can have surgery to alter our weight but what's specific about physical exercise is that we know that to get a uh, the kind of body that you get through physical exercise it can only be done through a certain amount of effort and individual achievement so the the exercise body the fit body is is a particularly distinct moral achievement in our in our modern society which shows that we um take seriously our health concerns, that we're able to discipline our bodies and subject our bodies to a kind of self-regulation. And the physical appearance of the body is the really important outcome of that, which shows to the rest of the world what a, what a virtu- how we've been able to conform to this kind of virtuous behaviour. Yeah, and I think to add to that, I think um, if, if you look at something like the, the Joe Wicks phenomenon that we talk about, It's also people keen to post on social media that they are doing this activity as well. So people are are, are keen to to demonstrate um, that they are active 
during this period as well. So I think in particular the the Joe Wicks that we talk about, although though, though that there are other examples, it, the extent to which people watched and participated in Joe Wicks during the, the lockdown period it is quite phenomenal. Um, 790,000 households tuned in for his first class and he had over 6 million views. And I think what's interesting ab- about the Joe Wicks phenomenon is that it was aimed at young people, but also families, something that families um, could do together. And there's a routine element to it as well, that every morning at nine o'clock in the weekday, you could start your day um, with Joe Wicks, doing physical exercise, taking responsibility for your health and fitness at home with your family. But also there was this routination of, of that exercise every morning at nine o'clock that it gave for some families that element um, of routine that might have been missing in lockdown as well. That's interesting. And the fourth thing that, that you discuss in the paper is is the balance between the I and the we in terms of how we are in, in certain ways, we are all in this pandemic together. But in, in some ways, certain individuals and certain groups are definitely in this a lot more than others. And, and that's definitely what comes through in the media and, and the news as well. So perhaps you can develop that aspect a little bit as well. Yeah, in terms of the, the fourth feature that we, we identify here, that we're the sense that we're, on the one hand, all in this together because it's a communicable disease. But equally, there then creeps in elements of blame and stigmatization, and this tends to focus around obesity and weight. Um, and so there's the publication of various findings about how um, people who have higher BMIs um, tend to be um, tend to have worse health outcomes. Um, and in a sense, this kind of hides hides. Um, the other factor, which is age, um, which seems to be a much more significant determinant of, 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 of negative health outcomes of, of coronavirus, but um, but they're not a population we're going to blame or stigmatise um, because ageing is, is, is something that is seen um, uh, to be beyond the individual's control. And actually, since we wrote this, it's been very interesting to see in the UK that the um, they've kind of relaunched the obesity strategy um, to come exactly on the back of this and is targeted directly at in in the context of um, saying, well, there are populations out there who are not taking uh, enough control of their weight and they need to take their weight down. And one of the reasons why they should be doing this um, is in terms of, of protecting themselves from coronavirus. There was also a very interesting, um, controversy um, a few weeks back when the Royal College of uh, General Practitioners launched uh, an an online seminar and course where they talked about coronavirus as a lifestyle disease. Um, Eventually they they kind of retracted that title for the seminar or or conference uh, in an outcry against um, that this clearly wasn't fundamentally um, a lifestyle disease. This was a communicative disease, but this was all part of the kind of how can we find particular populations um, or 
that then become stigmatized or distanced. And I kind of refer you back really to the work of Strong and Gutsblum, um, who talk about how within a public health crisis like this, the tendency is to hunt out particular populations who have suffered more than others and to look at their behaviors and actions and, and to um, shed or uh, cast a shadow of blame over their um, behavior um, as a way um, partly of, of, of creating this sense of urgency to do some action. So once we've identified a, a target population, we can, we can focus our energies there. But it, the flip side of that is also that it reassures people in this climate of fear that if I'm not one of them, then I'm relatively safe. So I don't need to do so much to um, to change my behavior or or I can sit more easily uh, um, with less fear of, of contracting the virus. Yeah, and I, I think that process of sort of blame and stigmatization of, of certain groups um demonstrates that sort of mixed message this idea that you know, anybody can get the virus um, and that was particularly played out in the UK with our Prime Minister Boris Johnson coming down and with the illness you know that the, the, the disease doesn't um, discriminate but actually on the flip side also this desire to to look at what are the risk factors and what are the risk factors that people can control by having um, better self-regulation of their weight and how can we do that is potentially through doing more exercise and taking more responsibility and further elevating that exercise is medicine message. I think Philippa's point about um, Boris Johnson and um, the obesity strategy is, is a really interesting one. Uh, that reveals um, something about this government, but also something reaffirms a point that Kuzblum says um, about how policy initiatives are brought in, not necessarily because they're evidence-based, but because of social factors. And that actually what we see is um, Boris Johnson has changed tack completely from his previous scepticism about um, physical activity promotion and and his concerns that this constructs a kind of nanny state which urges people to do things that they should have the freedom not to and all of a sudden because of his personal experience of getting ill he's now put his if you pardon the pun his weight behind this um this policy and said actually no let's take obesity seriously now i'm not disputing that there's lots of evidence out there that this is a good policy what i'm demonstrating is that actually this policy has come into action or is being um, solidified and, and has more force because of a personal individual experience of a prominent politician, not because of the scientific evidence. And you already talked about the masks as being another example when, when the research evidence hasn't necessarily changed so much. But then suddenly, also here in Finland, now everybody has to have a mask starting this week or, or the next week. It's really yeah, interesting. sure, and, and, mm. and I think, I mean, historically, um, I think people in the West have, have looked at um, the cultures in the East where mask wearing is much more frequent um, with some kind of suspicion, and I'm, I don't want to make this all about Boris Johnson, but he said um, some very notable things in the past about face coverings of Muslim populations and how this is very un-British. Um, but 
what we now see is that there, partly because there is a desire that we must be seen to be doing something different, um, and partly because there is some evidence to, that, to suggest that um, the countries in which mask wearing uh, is more part of the culture or, or is more long-standing part of the culture have been relatively successful. Um, I'm thinking about Japan and South Korea in particular in terms of controlling the virus, that that um, creates enough um, momentum for these new initiatives to be brought in. And I think, you know, one lasting effect of uh, this pandemic is that I think uh, cultures in the West are going to be wearing masks um, much more consistently uh, than they have in the past. Yeah, there's, there's certainly been a, a, an all, almost a, an amount of disdain, hasn't there, for um, cultures that wear masks and, and tourists that wear masks you know, in, in our country. So there has certainly been a, an interesting shift there in how that's perceived. Yeah, and you already started mentioning about the lasting effects of, of the pandemic and, and wearing masks might, might be one, one of the things that we have a a different culture around that in the future. What about when you think about physical cultures, so physical activity, exercise cultures, body cultures, what might be the more enduring impacts of, of the pandemic and what we have experienced this year? One of the things that Husman in particular talks about is is how these pandemics don't create new things. They, they accelerate processes that were already ongoing. Um, so this division of, um, of social classes, um, this emphasis on health and cleanliness. Um, he says these are things that are simply accelerated by this kind of pandemic situation. Um, but what I see as one of the consequences of this is, is, is a further move towards types of physical activity which are much more about health promotion and body management and much less about the traditional competitive physical elements of sport. And we've seen that contact sports in particular have have so much trouble or, or, or are highly problematic in this context of, of um, limited physical contact between individuals. But I think they were, they, there were already lots of questions, um, and this kind of relates back to my work on concussion in particular, concerns about the health consequences of, of taking part in these kind of sports. I think the pandemic situation is just going to accelerate that process and make those types of sport more difficult or more problematic for people to uh, continue participating in. Yeah, I think Dominic makes a really important point there about these not being new um, aspects, but this um, elevation um, of particular types of physical activity. But But I also wonder whether one of the trends there will be the fact that you can do exercise anywhere at any time in your house, outside your house, you can do physical activity. So it that there's no excuse almost for not being physically active. Um, and, and those that are not looking after themselves and not being physically active and not involved in exercise, these levelers of sort of shame, embarrassment and stigmatization, um, will continue to increase. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think and, and in some ways this is 
paradoxical to um, to, to the nature of the disease. That, that um, this is a disease which threatens the human population because it's contagious. And actually, what we're likely to see as the outcome of this is an increased pressure on individuals to self-manage and control their own health. Um, and so um, those processes were ongoing, and we've seen a, a kind of strong drift towards this. Um, emphasis on health self-management over the last 20 years or so and but it's paradoxical almost that a contagious disease which by its nature is a social disease is actually going to accelerate those processes of, of individual health management and i know that you are mainly talking about recreational sport and and exercise in your paper but what are your thoughts on on competitive and and the more elite and professional sport where are they heading i mean i think that's interesting we've seen the um kind of re-establishment of professional sports um in in the uk and, and and globally as well and i think they've been able to function because of the incredible resources they have that allow enable them to have routine testing and to isolate their their, their teams and um and their management and their, their their behind the scenes staff as well so whilst we may be able to continue with this kind of high level sport that um that actually uh doesn't need to be played in front of spectators it's it's the value of that sport is through its televising um i think it's the grassroots level of sport which is much more problematic and i think um we'll see grassroots level football uh, and other contact sports um become much more difficult to organize and much more problematic and we're likely to see a move away from participation at the grassroots level in those kinds of sports. I think what it will highlight at the elite levels is those sports that do have the finances to be able to to do the testing to to carry on um, in this context, whereas for those sports that may be popular but are less financially sustainable or, for example, women's sport, um, where there is less finance and sponsorship or or money to be able to to do that testing, we, we might see that those elements suffer more. Yeah, it's likely to exasperate the inequalities in sport as it's exasperated the inequalities in society. So you are painting quite a bleak picture of, of how the pandemic is impacting our sport and exercise culture. Is there anything positive to take home from this? I think for listeners of this podcast, I mean, I, I think um, we can see we go back to the point about how um physical activity is going to continue to be stressed as an important part of our daily routines how it's going to be made um even more acceptable to be done anywhere and everywhere um and and so i think you could argue that that's a positive outcome uh, of this um experience and 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 As Philip and I have said before, it's not about new changes. It's about accelerating changes that were already there. So I think those kind of contact sports were already facing a struggle to justify themselves, given the level of injury um, that was experienced by participants, that there was already a battle going on there. And I think this will simply um, tip the scales a little further in in, in the favour of those who... Um, who are campaigning for restrictions on, on these types of contact sport. Yeah, and just to add to that, I mean, I think there will be more emphasis on, on lifestyle sports um, that that 
people can see as a sort of positive or sports or activities that can be done in nature and in, in outdoor settings. So I, I think there will be um, a move towards those types of activities and lifestyle activities that haven't always been so prominent in the UK. Yeah, really, really exciting things to to discuss today. So what is next from you? Are you going to develop this work into something? Are you working on related projects or what's the future? As we said at the beginning, in some ways, this was a kind of response to a call. But um, I think like all sociologists, we're, we're always happy um, in a crisis when we can start to explain things. And, it, and so writing this was in some sense created a, uh, some comfort for us so that we could understand this situa- situation we were in. I think it would be really interesting to look at some international comparisons here because our work is primarily driven by the UK evidence and I'd be very interested in teasing out some of the um, the cross-cultural comparisons and, and how these um, issues play out in different ways in different countries. The, the other issue that I think strikes me is about, and it relates back to Elias's broader theory and, and a part of that theory which is called the quest for excitement which kind of explains why sport is so central in our um, contemporary societies and what it is that the, that is different about sport and that relates to or Elias argues in that context that sports are sustainable because they they offer an opportunity to to break from the normal routines of life to do something different to experience an emotional experience which is is distinct from are really quite regulated and um, and um, very uniform and predictable lives. So how is sport and exercise going to play out in that respect? How is exercise within the home, for instance, if this becomes the new norm, how is how how are we going to make that different and refreshing and emotionally stimulating rather than something which is simply just, a, dis- uh, a means for getting fit or a means for uh, developing the body. I'd be interested to look at those kind of issues. Yeah, I think Dominic makes a really interesting point there because actually if you look, even if you look at the, the sort of Joe Wicks phenomenon, those that have been very successful in this um, virtual exercise at home environment, one of the things that you find is that it tailors off. So there's an initial sort of excitement and and following of these sorts of routines but that it it sort of tailors off so there is something interesting there that it's it doesn't give people the same sense um of this quest for excitement um in the ways that other activities might do so it'd be interesting to see how that how that develops i mean i think dominic makes a really important point about the value of sociology and for the sort of podcast um listeners here around being able to understand the trends that we're seeing around physical activity and exercise in relation um, to the COVID situation. And I think it certainly gave me comfort when I started to see some of the trends happening that we were able to explain them and put them in context. Um, And I think that that is something um, that can be said around the value of a sociological um, approach or understanding to these trends and patterns. Why I enjoyed your paper was as well that kind of when you read those things, a lot of lot of those things click. So I think we will start wrapping up. So maybe if you want to just summarize a couple of take home messages from for our listeners today. I think 
my take-home messages um, for this would probably be that it's really important to think about how our actions have been driven by fear and stigmatization and social divisions and a, and, and a sense of an urgency of action. Um, it's really useful to look back at work and, and see those kind of illustrations of um, how pandemics and health crises have, have played out in the past and how these features are a continuous um, presence in, in this kind of social context. I think it's it's interesting to see how the desire for scientific solutions is probably greater today than it ever has been in the past. And I'm really struck by um, the frequency with which the press report, um, you know, the great scientific breakthrough that's going to 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 represent the end of the COVID crisis and we'll all return to normal. And these claims are probably misguided. You know, I, I, I hope completely that there's a vaccine which comes about which, which solves this problem. But the likelihood is that we will continue to have to work with the virus over a long period of time. And, and we're probably misguided to put too much faith in scientific solutions when social solutions are are likely to be really, really important as well. I think the other or final point I would say about the key message is that do reflect on how, if you yourself are one of the healthy few, that it's actually because you're socially advantaged rather be, than because you're a kind of virtuous person who's worked out and kept exercising and kept fit. You know, I do think a fundamental aspect of this pandemic has been the way in which the socially disadvantaged have been um, disproportionately affected by uh, the pandemic. And um, and there is an element of, I was going to say luck, I don't know that there's an element of luck, I think these things are, are, are prescribed by our place in the social structure, but I certainly um, don't think uh, people who are getting ill are doing so because um, they are in any way to blame, um, and people who are not getting ill are, are staying healthy because they, they they are doing the right things. I think this is determined not solely by our individual choices, but our place in the broader social structure. Yeah, and just just to add to that, I mean, I think Elias's work around shame, embarrass, embarrassment and stigmatisation um, can can be a really fruitful framework for trying to understand this the social responses um, to the pandemic. Um, I think his work in particular around shame and embarrassment is something that can really help us understand how we respond, but how other people um, respond to particular groups um, who are seen to not be doing their their bit um, for containing um, the virus. And I think that's a, an important thing to think about moving forward. Dominic and Philippa, thank you to both of you so much for joining me today. Thank, thank you. you very much for having us. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Through Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. 
it would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.